Welcome to Steel and Glory, where we discuss the lively world of historical fencing and everything else related to the sword arts around the globe. Today's guest we have with us is William Francis. He is a determined individual who has always been driven to succeed, to succeed in every aspect of his life. Born and raised in the United States, William discovered his passion for Asian martial arts at a very young age. After trying out several disciplines, he settled on Hapkido, Southern Shaolin, and White Tiger Kung Fu, which he practiced for a total of eight years. Despite not being naturally gifted in physical activities, William has relentlessly, in his pursuit of excellence, striven hard and achieved high. He trained daily for six of the eight years he practiced martial arts, determined to improve his skills and become a master of the art. William's dedication paid off as he developed a deep understanding of the principles and techniques of each discipline, ultimately becoming a skilled martial artist. However, William's relentless pursuit of improvement led him to feel like he had reached a plateau in his training. Rather than becoming complacent, he chose to step away from the martial arts and pursue other physical challenges. Today, William continues to push himself to new heights in his newfound love of Western and European martial arts, always striving to improve and become the best version of himself. His dedication and unwavering commitment to his goals serve as an inspiration to all who know him. Ladies and gentlemen, everyone else, I give you William Francis. Thanks, Nathan. Show, buddy. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you got it, man. Okay, so, wow. So you, I don't know if it's fair to say you converted from Eastern to Western martial arts. Maybe that's too harsh oh, to say. There was a gap in between. Uh-huh. Um, so let's talk about uh, two good things. Two good things that happened to you because of weapons martial arts. Um, well, some of the most fun you can have as a kid is playing around with pretend weapons, right? Stick guns That's right. and stick swords and... You know, it's probably uh, no safety equipment and probably an uh, injury or two amongst your friends. But that's some of the most fun a young boy can have, really. And so what's happened with weapons martial arts is I get to relive some of the funnest times of my youth. But it's actually better this time because I'm not doing it out back behind the garage or in the yard. I fight in castles or on bridges or in the woods you know so it's like a it's a youth playtime 2.0 but better than the first time around <laughs> so that's 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 one clear significant thing it's like i'm having more fun as an adult than i did as a little kid and i had a lot of fun as a kid but it's better now um and the other thing is uh, the other really awesome thing is if you do martial arts, generally your health is going to improve and you're going to, you're going to sort of curate and be a custodian of your health rather than just worrying about your health like a normal American. Um, right. And so you can 
be active and be agile and challenge yourself for many, many years. Unlike, you know, unlike really hard sports where, uh, now don't get me wrong. Those people are warriors in ways, but there's usually like a retirement age for sports. Right. But for, if, you, right. if you approach martial arts as a general holistic field of study, you tend to do it for a long time and you tend to stay active for a long time. So that's probably the other thing This like, you know, I'm in my mid fifties and I'm as active as I've ever been. That's probably you know, the other main thing. It's like, it's, it's helped with my uh, health and fitness. You know, you said something really important. Actually, you said a few things um, that are, that are quite important to not just gloss over. I I'm hearing that weapons, martial arts, help you develop a sound mind and sound body. Okay, I got something to say about the weapon. Yeah. In mankind's history, we have these events in our evolution called genetic bottlenecks. Events or influences in our environment which sharply curtail or reduce the population. Okay, the ice age, plagues, uh, these things test man's ability to survive. And the ones that don't, don't contribute their DNA anymore. This is basic stuff, right? Well, something that people don't think about is the sword or maybe a spear or maybe other similar weapon. But in my mind, the sword is one of mankind's most powerful genetic bottlenecks. And so men of a warrior size and shape have certain proportions and due to our relationship to the gravitational field a certain height and a certain weight and a certain density range is optimal for survival and that's why the average size man in a given culture is a certain size those were the best at sword fighting guys with arms that are super long for example got their arms cut off guys with arms that were super short for example didn't have the range to fight with the sword so my sort of philosophical or spiritual connection with sword fighting specifically is that we're imprinted and almost created in our size and our appearance by the ability to use the sword it's been a huge influence on our size stature and appearance Wow, so we're just, uh, we're, I have this yeah. like philosophical connection to sword fighting. You know, that's also important. Boy, we're really just uh, we're really going on this one, aren't we? <laughs> we're just getting into the nitty gritty. You know, um, we've had I've had different people on this podcast before, and I myself have pondered kind of deeply. Why is it so amazing this connection between man and sword? And I think you have really brought up some interesting points. And, you know, the sword is probably, the, most people would say, the most fun weapon to learn and to wield. There's just this deep connection with that implement above all others. Even though spears and halberds are more powerful, the, the bow um, is more versatile. There's something isn't there about that sword and it's really interesting kind of how you how you said that that it's um 
that it's a a, a bottleneck, right? The 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 proportions of of uh, people. Yeah, and, and people uh, will bring up the spear, and people will bring up the bow uh, as a genetic bottleneck, but eh, your size and stature matter a little bit less. Your body proportions matter a little bit less with those weapons. I think the sword. Yeah, I I get what you're saying. I I hear what you're saying, and I that's interesting. I'd have to think on that a little bit. I I know you've thought about that a lot. Um, and I it's one of my I, thesis statements. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite it's quite an interesting concept. For me, I think it's about the mono e mono. Um, our architecture, the way we're designed, is is to fight. Um, human beings and, and especially males are designed within our physiology to have confrontation, fighting. Um, the way that our heels on our feet are, the way that our hands go, like you're, we're very supple. We're the most supple thing on the planet, even still to this day, is a human hand. Um, barring none, there's no machine that could do what a human hand can do. Um, the breadth of what we can do. There's some machines that can obviously do some things right one specific task or a couple very very well but the human hand can do everything very very good um but you take the hand and you, you you ball it up you make a fist now all of a sudden you have this this cudgel like instrument and and all the suppleness is gone and now you got a hard club right um but within that you put a a, a club within the grip or or uh, you know, a sharp object, a piece of steel. Suddenly, the way that your hips work, the way that you can transfer that energy from the ground out your hand into the cutting edge of the sword, it's like it's made to go there. It's this brilliant extension of the human body is that hand weapon. And the sword is king of all of the hand weapons. Um, it's just so fun and rewarding and it, and it's, it grounds us, I think, into mm -hmm. something very elemental, something very primitive. Agreed. Well said. Yeah. And, uh, it's no wonder, like, like, as you were saying, as children, right, we get a, naturally we pick up sticks and we want to sort of like tap, 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 like sort of, you know, play fight with each other. <laughs> and we get to do this as adults. And, uh, you know, adult life is the humdrum, right? And it's just, it could be so empty. Like the pursuit of material gain is important, but it's empty, right? And um, so that, that was, I really liked what you said about sports, right? Um, because there is a retirement. You, you working in your sport until you retire. And when do you retire? Age 30. <laughs> or, you know, whatever, sooner for a lot of people. And then, and then what? And uh, you're exactly right. Because I used to play all kinds of sports, and now that I'm 45, uh, you know, and before then, um, in my in my early 30s, I sort of gravitated towards this martial art thing called the uh, you know swordsmanship, and and here we are. So, so you opened uh, up a pathway for yourself that can last forever, till yeah. you can't stand up anymore. So my plan is to do heavy armor until I can't anymore, and then to do harness fetched in or uh, 
Kima style training or rapier or fencing. And then when I can't do that anymore, I'll do Tai Chi sword. So I'll still be using the sword as an instrument of focus and as an instrument of physical expression pretty much till I can't stand up anymore. I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's, that's really exciting. It's really exciting, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you were talking about, well, uh, in the bio, <laughs> you have a lot of experience in Eastern martial arts. A bit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, can you run us through that a little bit? Sure. Through that um, journey? So uh, like you do, I had fascination with every type of martial arts as a young person. And uh, freshman year in high school, I believe, uh, I went, I lived in a very small town in New Jersey. And I took a bus to a slightly bigger town that had modern things like martial arts schools. And so I was able to connect with a, a martial arts school there. And I got funding and permission from my parents. And so I did Hapkido for a year, which is, uh, it's sort of an adaptation of Korean uh, military training martial arts. It's not really a hard or a soft martial art. Uh, They do some punching and kicking, some throwing and grappling, and a little bit of internal energy work. and so my, I had a good teacher and that was a good introduction. And actually what happened with me and Hapkido is uh, the teacher moved to another town. And so he folded up his school. And uh, so then I didn't really have another outlet that called to me. And then uh, for some years, I just did uh, regular kid stuff, skateboarding and such. Um, in my early 20s, I moved to Kansas City and there here where I am now, uh, I discovered a a school of Shaolin martial arts. And uh, of course, from watching all the Kung Fu movies, I was absolutely incensed to find a traditional Chinese martial art. And and we did all the stuff, animal boxing and, uh, you know, sparring and two on two and weapons demos. And we would go to other martial arts schools and they they love to have us because we went really hard with our weapons you could see our weapons were all you know they weren't in pristine condition they were all trashed from uh, going at each other um so i did that i did i did southern shaolin for a little over six years um and from the beginning i was doing it every day i just i got into it and i just wanted more the more i did the more i wanted and uh so after a while i was living in the school and, uh, you know, keeping it clean and having it ready for class and uh, training on the equipment by myself all the time. Um, so it really be, that really became a lifestyle for me. Uh, I've spent some years in San Diego uh, since the 90s, uh, early 2000s to the 20 teens. I was in San Diego and I discovered a really good Kung Fu school there called White Tiger. And uh they're uh, official inheritors of a very old lineage. Uh, it's called Rizzo's White Tiger Kung Fu. And uh, I did that as a lifestyle, lifestyle for about a year. Uh, I jumped right into it and just started training every day, and did whatever they told me to do. Uh, I did some iron palm training and 
they, that school has some uh, very high level sorcery stuff that doesn't necessarily answer to normal physics. Uh, they have a very powerful system. So uh, that was in San Diego proper. Yeah. Yeah. Mira Mesa. I, I, oh, in Mira Mesa. Okay. Yeah. I, I grew up in San Diego County, actually. All right. What's <laughs> I did. I grew up in Escondido. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> let's go. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, Shaolin was my long chapter of training and Hapkido and, uh, White Tiger were kind of short chapters of training. And, uh, then, uh, I came back to Kansas city, had to get out of San Diego. I was also partying. So White Tiger Kung Fu was like a, this is how I got out of partying. And then it seemed like I wanted to get away from my life there in San Diego for a while. So I came back to Kansas City for about a year, stopped doing White Tiger and uh, just practiced by myself. I've got a warehouse space in Kansas City. So I was able nice. to practice by myself. And that was good. Uh, yeah. Over the years, I have cross trained with every type of uh, Eastern martial art because uh, you form friends in that community. You form friendships yeah. in that community. So then you want to show each other stuff and go to the park and spar for a little bit and see how things compare or whatever. So uh, I've probably cross-trained for a day or a week in 20 different styles just to compare it to. And, you know, I love the lore and the history of it. So how the different styles compare to one another, is, uh, that's an area of interest for me. But... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So then when I went back to San Diego, I didn't start doing martial arts again. Um, and uh, a few, few more years went by not doing martial arts. Moved back to Kansas City again in uh, 2015. Um, got into bicycle riding and had some injuries. And then my physical health went to pot. And... Uh, so then I kind of got alarmed. Like my physical health is, you know, you're, you're in your late forties, bro. You need to like get your stuff together. And, um, during, you know, sitting around with broken bones and stuff, I, uh, started going to bookstores and filling a whole shelf full of new books. Well, books about what? Well, epic fantasy stuff like swords <laughs> and sorcerers and dragons and warriors and knights and all that. All so after, you know, six months of just reading, 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 filling my head with all this stuff, I went, hang on a second. Where is the actual sword fighting in this town? And so then I got on the Internet and, oh, look, SCA has a fighter practice six blocks from my house. So that's how I got into armored fighting. Nice. That is super cool. Yeah. So that, that transition of of. uh yeah, like, like like you're saying that the sparring, the constant sparring, the martial arts, the you know the the fast life, and um and then um being forced to stop. Yeah, uh, you know when you move when you change cities, you know you can't just find a school that's equivalent to what you were doing before, and so it's easy to just get sidetracked. It's very easy to just like, uh, I'll I'll get back to it eventually. Got and it. then two years, 
three years go by and you haven't done anything physical <laughs> and you're mm-hmm. like, Whoa, how did we get here? Gotcha. So I did that a few times in my life. But yeah, uh, so... once, once I found sword fighting, you know, the, that, that ancient bond that we have with the sword, it was like right away. I was like, I'm doing this for the rest of, I'm doing some version of this for the rest of my life. It bit you. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I know. Ah, getting bit by the sword. That's a, that's a toughie. That's a toughie. I'm not sure if anyone's ever recovered from it, honestly. <laughs> I mean, if you get, I mean, you get your, you get your guys where you're like, come on, dude, come on. And you're like kind of, kind of dragging them along and maybe those guys will quit. But and as soon as they get the fire, as soon as they get that like new guy enthusiasm, it's like, as long as you feed them, as long as you feed the fire, they'll keep doing it. Yeah. So if you yeah. got a spot for them and you got equipment for them and you got different people for them to spar with and always new challenges, new challenges, new challenges, it's like they never want to quit. There you go. So now I did. S- S- oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I did. So I did SCA for two years and then COVID stuff happened and they canceled all their events and they kept canceling, canceling, canceling. So I went like a whole year of just training by myself and I trained every single day. I hit my, I hit my Pell. I hit my training dummy every single day. Uh, I ran and did push-ups and pull-ups and sit-ups and kept my physical health on point. Um, and so finally that organization said, okay, six more months. They like said, I remember June 1st is when we're doing events again. And I'm like, I can't take it. I just can't do it. I can't wait. Uh, so I got on Facebook and hit friend request, friend request, friend request of anybody with a funny name, anybody with armor in their uh, profile picture. And that's how I came upon my mentor, Avalok Twice Born in Seattle. And uh, so he came right in my inbox and said, how can I help you, William? And I, oh, okay, serious guy, interactive guy. Awesome. I can get some answers from this guy. And uh, I said, is there any any of your organization or members in Kansas City? Uh, It said in his bio, he's in the Empire of Medieval Pursuits, which I had heard of but knew nothing about. And uh, he, he said, no, I don't think there is anyone in Kansas City. Maybe you'll be the first one. And I'm like, oh, I only have this little bit of experience. I, I'm not anybody. And he looked at my he, he looked at my photos and he said, oh, you're a good tattooist. Why don't you come to Seattle on my dime and tattoo my wife for her birthday? And I was like, oh yeah, I do that. I'm into it. So and he said, bring your armor and we'll see what you got going on. So that's how I met Avalok. And uh, that's how I was introduced to the Empire of Medieval Pursuits. Um, and that's quite the story. Yeah. That's so, amazing. That's really cool. He has a, a fighting pit and a Pell and two armories and a garb making workshop all in his house. So, so on day two, uh, we went out in the yard in the fighting pit. And, uh, you know, he's got a list. He's got a, a, a fence with sand. Um, and, uh, and this guy came at me, like, I felt, I thought he was trying to kill me. And also I was a year out of practice, just hitting my pal every day. 
and I knew this guy's like a notorious knight and warrior. And so I didn't want to waste his time. So I tried to go at him just all crazy. So I, you know, it, it was uh, definitely the most intense fighting experience I'd had until that point. Um, also, obviously, he's a, you know, 30-something years master of all types of weapons arts. So uh, so that was that was a, a wake-up. Like, A, that this type of intensity exists in modern humans. This type of combat actually exists still. And B, it's accessible to me. You know, I didn't die. I got, got some lumps. But then I'm like, okay, this is something I can pursue and potentially get good at. So that was that was my gateway into Empire of Medieval Pursuits. Man, that sounds like like one of the the books you read. Yeah, yeah, it's been like a story. <laughs> it really does. That's re- yeah. that's uh that's super duper. Oh uh, man, yeah, I don't know what other. Yeah, um, now Avalok uh, Twiceborn, he's uh, he's an interesting fellow. So can you just sort of tell the audience a little bit uh, his background, wh- what he does? Sure. Uh, he's been doing rattan fighting for, it's going on 40 years now. Uh, he's was in other organizations a long time ago, and uh, he started the EMP um <sighs> Uh, he left another organization and decided to throw an event based on armored fighting and Britain weapons. Uh, that event was called Ragnarok. Uh, so it was Viking themed. Um, the, the point of the event in the narrative is to prevent Ragnarok, to prevent the end of the world. And uh, that was exactly 20 years ago. And everybody knows that because one of his sons was born right around that time. So Avalok's son is the same age as the Empire of Medieval Pursuits. Anyway, Ragnarok was so successful that he just went on to make an organization out of it. Um, so Avalok made the combat rules of the Empire of Medieval Pursuits. Yeah, no, thank you for that. That's that's really cool. Um, and before you get into that, because you had shown me, I had never heard of EMP until we started talking. Um, okay. You know, get, getting this podcast together. And uh, one of the things that really struck me is, is you, you gave me a video to kind of do my homework on. And one of those things was him kind of talking about uh, EMP. And the reoccurring theme, at least the theme that kind of rang in my head, because I've of that... I am of the same age group, uh, more or less. The The big rule is be excellent to each other. That's right. <laughs> and I just thought that was, a, that was just the coolest movie reference ever. And uh, the, the way that it's explored plugging into the Marshall community, I just thought it's great. So if you could explain that in the rule set just a little bit, I'd, I'd appreciate that a lot. Sure. Uh, so rule number one is... Be excellent to one another. Uh, That's the overarching guideline and everything sort of progresses from there. And uh, because it's so general and yet such a strong statement, uh, what you see is that it becomes really obvious if someone is or is not behaving in an excellent manner. We don't say be good to each other. We say be excellent to each other. 
And uh, it just when when pe- when a person's words or actions fall short of excellence, it's pretty obvious. So it's a, it's a, a good way to say it. Um, so as far as our combat rules are concerned, uh, some organizations will fight to one good hit, and then the fight is considered done, and the recipient will decide whether it's a good hit or not. Uh, so we do a thing similar to that, except we fight to three good hits. These good hits we call telling blows. Now, uh, a light tap or if a blow just grazes you, we can disregard that blow or we can tell the person we're fighting, no, that's not good enough. Or we can say light. Um, now, uh, you do get guys that ignore blows because they want to win the bout. Um, and that's not excellent. And so if you get a guy that's continually ignoring blows that everyone else thinks looked and sounded good, eventually no one's, you know, someone's going to have a word with that person, but eventually no one's going to want to fight that person. And so it sort of sorts, it kind of sorts itself out. If you get my meaning, um, people just don't want to engage with that person anymore because they're not playing fair. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a sort of a standard of how hard of a blow is considered a telling blow, but there's kind of a range. So with a new person, maybe you just give them a light tap and then say, hey, you know, if they ignore it, you can say, hey, I'm going easy on you because I'm feeling you out. And then they'll say, okay, one, and they'll count it as one. So as you're fighting, you get hit, you say one. You get hit again, you say two. You get hit again, you say three. Um, in bouts that matter, like tournaments, for example, uh, often we will take a knee on the third hit or we will act out our death. Um, also in melees, sometimes it's safer not to stay standing up. Sometimes it's safer to lie down with your sword under your helmet, your shield over your body, and your knees next to one another on your side. So that when a thousand pounds of flesh and metal step on you or fall on you or crash into you, you're protected. Mm. Um, And then we also have a blow called a substantial blow. And this is a blow that would probably take a warrior out of a fight in a real situation For example, if a stab from a sword misses your armor completely and gets this fabric, maybe in the area of the armpit or groin, we would say substantial. If I see the point of someone's sword go right on my eye slot on my helmet, I'm going to say that probably would have gotten inside my helmet. And I'll say, you know what? You got me. Substantial. Um, Also, if someone hits me so hard that I don't want to fight anymore, be it in the arm, leg, body, or head, I will say substantial, and I will give the bout to them. Um, So, again, substantial is up to the recipient. And uh, in a tournament, you know, you got a bunch of ostensibly experts watching, and you have have an audience and stuff, so uh, you want to be honorable about calling your blows. And uh, it's a little bit of a learning curve to keep track. One, two, three, and... After a few fights, you figure it out. It becomes very intuitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's how our the... combat—that's how our combat rules go. 
I like that. I like that because it's assumed armored combat. You get three blows. It's quantitative. Okay, right? because, so here's uh, another yeah. thing. Here's another thing. Uh, yeah. uh, so there's a difference between armor as worn and assumed armor. Now, again, we're not fighting with real weapons and we're not really trying to kill each other. So it's important mm -hmm. to keep that in mind. But uh, a lot of groups play assumed armor or an assumed amount of garb or etc a lot of groups play assumed armor we tend to play armor as worn okay. so if you get barbarians showing up celts early period guys with not very heavy armor or not very much armor then you know if, if we hit someone just on clothing or skin we expect them to probably move the uh, value of that shop up so if it really stings or hurts, we'd probably tell them to take a substantial. Mm -hmm. And, uh, okay. it, you know, even if we just, just barely tap them on just garb or no armor or garb whatsoever, just bare skin, we'll probably tell them, you know, you should acknowledge that as one telling blow. On the other end of the spectrum, guys in full plate, guys in boohurt armor, we remind our newer guys you got to hit these guys really hard or they're not going to accept your blows as being a telling blow. So uh, the amount and type of armor that the fighter is wearing will somewhat determine the effectiveness of the blow. Again, at the discretion of the recipient. Sure. So we, we call it armor as worn. Armor so as worn. So another thing is... If, I like that. If you wear Actually. a... a if you wear a bar grill helmet like this one, mm -hmm. um, we say that is not period, and so we're going to assume we're, we're going to uh, we're going to call that assumed armor, which the armor of none. We're going to assume that you have no face protection here. So if you yeah. take any kind of decent shot to the face in one of these helmets, you're going to call a substantial. You will award your opponent the bout. Yeah. Um, so that encourages us to have full face period ish looking helmets. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's considered armored. And if you get hit in the face, then it's just considered one of three telling blows. So what kind of pressure do you guys have on um, the, the, the type of armor as, as far as being um, accurate to a certain period? Uh, well, we all know that it's fun and awesome to build a period-accurate kit. Uh, I mean, it's just the coolest thing ever. If you can, like, replicate that visually. You know, already at a medieval reenactment fighting event, you want to have not let the least amount of technology around possible. And if it's like a camping event and a fighting event at the same time, you get one or two people going around with their phones to video, but mostly people aren't on their phones. And we try to keep the cars out of view or off of the site or across the way in a parking lot uh, so that... It's a transformative uh, experience. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we refer to this as a immersive reenactment. Mm -hmm. So when you get enough period stuff going on around you and you reduce the amount of modern stuff, to a certain point, it becomes very immersive and it becomes really magical. You know, it's a really special experience. Um, and so uh, if the same thing applies to your opponent's kit, 
You know, guys in really badass armor complete my reenactment experience. So it's not just a test of skill. It's not just the sport. It's not just me expressing myself through sword arts. It's also like this fantasy come to life. You yeah. know, so guys, guys that scare me with the really badass armor and crazy looking weapons are actually enhancing my experience. <laughs> so uh, because I get that out of fighting them, I try to do the same thing for others. So I'm conscious of the little bits of my kit that aren't accurate yet because right. I haven't been able to afford it or I just haven't gotten around to it or something broke and now I had to put a piece of paracord there instead of you know, the actual leather strap that belongs there, etc. Right. I'm conscious of when I am not presenting myself as a, a period-looking fighter because I want to so do that for the guys fighting me. I want to, I want to round out their reenactment experience by looking period. And so the, the joy and the glory of building your own period accurate kit, that's something everybody wants to get into. And mm -hmm. Hey, I'll hook you up with my guy. Hey, I know a guy with a pair of legs that'll fit you. Hey, I scored these shins and I don't have a use for them. Uh, that's, that's a constant thing with more experienced fighters. That we're anybody that's trying to bring newer fighters up, that we're always on the prowl for, you know, helping guys build their kit. I think that's I mean, great. I, I want to face people that look period. And yeah. Every every week at my fighter practice, I see guys that have a range of not very period to period. I want to get yeah. all these guys up to speed so every guy I fight looks like this badass character out of a movie or a novel very cool because it's funner for me so that yeah. that's there's like a a shared joy and responsibility in getting everybody's kit and garb up to speed so it sounds like it's it's um so it sounds like the the gold standard is really being kind of like uh, historically accurate but that it's not absolutely necessary although the pressure is going in that direction but right. let's say if I was to show up in a functional fantasy type outfit, no one's going to bust me over it. Yeah, it's absolutely fine. And so we have some uh, we have some other groups that come fight EMP rules with us. Um, and it's some of them 5, 10, 20, 50 at a time. And uh, they stick to their own armor standards. You know, we got we got guys that look like a bunch of orcs <laughs> and uh, or like post-apocalyptic and uh their armor is safe and they fight really well and you know i mean facing a line of 10 or 20 orcs is it's an immersive experience it's not period accurate but we all know you know we all sure we, but we it's all fun have, uh, spent, spent our time with the tolkien mythology and oh, yeah. fantasy mythology of every type so we all have a sort of a place in our hearts where that's special. So yeah. we're good. Well, with it. And well there's put. no rule in the EMP about uh, period accuracy. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. And then, so now you're talking about fighting in these fun venues and you just kind of, um, you know, making it to where it's this, it's this, uh, I said transformative. There's a different word that you said. What was that word? Immersive immersive thank you so you you're creating these immersive experiences as part of the fight right 
Yes. So we have the how often does this happen? Sport, and we have the danger and the violence. That's like a legitimate martial art on one hand. Yeah. But then we have this fantasy narrative on the other hand. There's like a living history. You know, the EMP is a kingdom. It's the kingdom of Ardespia. We have a king and queen. We have lords. We have municipalities. Um, so the, the level of real danger combined with the living history narrative combined with the period kits and the uh, environments that have no, you know, less modern stuff in them. It, all, all these factors go together to make it uh, more immersive. So it sounds like some, a very fun weekend to me. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So you, you know, some some groups have the like Buhert organizations have the most uh, stringent rules as far as period accurate kits. Yeah. But they don't really have a living history narrative. They just have a sport. Right. It's and you can make sport. a name for yourself in the sport and, uh, you know, oh man, I want to fight that guy. Or, oh man, I really do not want to fight that guy. Um, <laughs> but it's more like teams and a sport. They don't really have a living history narrative. No. And I, they, they probably benefit from it. But... They're not that kind of nerds. They're more on right. the violent end, end of the violent nerds. Yeah, they where, just want violence. Yes, under where, a banner. Well, and period accuracy in the appearance. And they fight in castles, you know, but uh, but they don't have a king per se. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so I would like to I would like to mention a few things that uh, make the Empire of Medieval Pursuits different from yeah. other rattan weapon organizations yeah let's talk about um, that I'm, I'm curious uh, go for it okay so one thing is when you become a knight in other organizations through effort and through the acceptance of the knights as your peers now uh once you become a knight and you get that white belt and spurs or whatever they use for a a, a marker um you're a knight for life so you can cross that line and then go to the couch and just tell people what to do and talk about the old days, um, which many don't. Many continue for many, many years to pursue the fighting arts. But uh, you're not held to any standard as far as fighting ability. In the Empire of Medieval Pursuits, when you become a knight, you must test your skills against the other fighters in a tournament and prove that you are in the top 25% of all fighters in the empire uh, at least once every three years. And there's other ways to, there's other ways to maintain your knighthood status. Like for example, if you have a squire that can attain that top 25% of all fighters uh, and they go and represent you in this tournament, then you can uh, maintain your belt and spurs and knighthood status. So, um, martial prowess has to be maintained in order for you to stay a knight. Most, in most cases. Yes, the top 25%, which is fairly generous, I think. Um, another thing that makes the Empire of Medieval Pursuits different from other uh, reenactment organizations is our system of governance. Uh, in some organizations... 
there's a board of directors and a comfy office that's kind of sort of separate from the population and from people doing the sports and the events and the board of directors makes the rules uh whereas the king and queen in those organizations are kind of figureheads and they're there to hand out awards at events and uh you know having a having a crown tournament and having a king and a queen uh makes for a robust uh, living history narrative, but uh, in the Empire Medieval Pursuits, we have a crown war. So a potential king has to raise an army. So therefore, <laughs> it's A, based on martial prowess, and B, it's kind of a popularity contest, which we think is kind of period. Also, mm -hmm. the basic unit in the system of governments in the e governance in the EMP is the individual citizen. So the various baronies and fiefs and shires and households uh, have a lord and each lord gets a vote in the House of Lords for every five members in his group. If you have 25 members, you have five votes. So the individual citizen will affect the lord's decision or the, the, how the Lord votes on various topics and how many citizens each Lord is responsible to will uh, give that Lord more or less votes in the House of Lords meetings. House of Lords meetings can make new, propose new rules to the crown. Um, in our organization, the king and queen can make laws and unless they're struck down by the House of Lords, those laws are immediately in effect. Um, so, uh, also, when you join, when you actually pay your membership fee for the Empire Medieval Pursuits, you're supposed to declare what Lord you are under, what household you belong to. And there's a few folks that are just kingdom at large, but most folks, say that they're in this household under this Lord or in this barony under this Lord. Um, and so that gives the power to the Lords. You don't have to be in your local household, barony, shire. You don't have to be part of your local municipality. You can be in any municipality that will take you. So for a while there, I was in Avalox household in Seattle. Uh, it's called the Abbey. And uh, so I added my individual tick mark, my vote, my number, my presence as an individual in the kingdom to their voting power. So um, we say that this system of governments that governance that we use is a bottom up system of governance. And then our board of directors does a lot of hard work and uh, and they're super important, but they don't make the laws king and queen make the laws interesting so that's that's, that's uh, adds to our uh sort of living history narrative and uh, also creates a dynamic relationship between the members of the population and the king and queen it's an important relationship the king and queen aren't just figureheads and the population aren't just rabble you know right. we all, we're all we're all making this together so the board of directors 
they're the facilitators of what I mean they pay the insurance yeah you know they make sure that the king and queen and the lords are enforcing our rules there is a rule set in the EMP that has to be observed right and that's changeable through this uh, governance uh, this mechanism of government yep so we I mean um, so when it comes to brass tacks you're talking about where you guys are going to fight what the events look like um, budgets for that um, safety rules, yep, uh, et cetera, et cetera, insurance. et cetera. Insurance, right? I know yeah. insurance. That's the big, that's the thing in it. Um, um, yeah, all, all those things. So another another example of our unique system of governance is, let's say you and I are both members of the mid of the Empire of Medieval Pursuits, and let's say I've been pissing you off at events, so I've been behaving disrespectfully at events, saying and doing things that are, are offensive to you and are probably outside the be excellent to each other rule. Um, you can go to your Lord and have him go to my Lord. And if the two Lords agree, you and I can engage in combat according to the EMP rules. And we can fight for pink slips, meaning persona death. You, if you win, if you have challenged me and you are offended at me, you can challenge me to a duel to the death. Death meaning I'm not allowed to participate in the EMP for a whole year. <laughs> so you can, get, you can get me kicked out for a whole year if I'm pissing you off. As long as you go to your Lord and then my Lord and your Lord agree with it. Okay. So there is a... So instead of... Because... Someone could game that if they would, if they tried, right? And so the idea is that the lords have to get together and be like, "Ah, this is this, they. It's not, it's not um, bad enough for this thing to happen." Sure, sure. Yeah, right. So it's just it's some like, dumb little no, thing. No, we're gonna or, enforce that you guys figure that out without fighting. Right, but if there's grievances, obviously, if someone's just not. Uh, well, everyone can think of an extreme case of why someone shouldn't be fighting for a year. It's basically, hey, right. dude, I'm calling you out. Cool off. Right. But it's still down to the contest. <laughs> now, right. the, per- the person who brings um, the, the, the problem to the attention of their lord, they can't designate a champion, can they? They have to yep. fight. Yep. Oh, they can Yep, we do all kinds of things like that. <laughs> okay. Yep. You know, this, is, this is kind of fun. This is like Game of Thrones yep. stuff. Yes. Well, we, we say that it's period. We say that it's uh, medievally accurate. Sure. Yeah, and why wouldn't it be? No, then, and that makes sense, right? That makes sense. So again, the, the living history part is tied into the combat. Hmm. Yeah, no, I get it. I, 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 you know, I never thought of that. In in Hema, <laughs> everyone's just an anarchist. I don't know. It's like, hey guys, we should get together, and make some rules, and everyone says, "No rules." <laughs> right. So yeah. well, it's I basically like the that tournament part. that you go to, and it's you know that's what they do. I mean, I do like uh, I, I do like that about Hema as compared to some other organizations. It's an like, open sandbox, uh, and that is nice. 
you know, when you and a, another guy are about to fight, you can say, are you okay with punches? No. Uh, I've had too many concussions. Just use the weapon to hit my head. Mm -hmm. uh, are you okay with kicks? Are we going to throw each other or trip each other, etc.? You know, you can, you can kind of work a few things out yeah. before fighting yeah. every bout if you want. Because there's, there's not a rule, then sure. you can just work it out right then. Yep. So then everybody, you know, a range of abilities and health levels can have fun doing it. So I like that. Yeah, yeah and, it, and it is cool. I I do like that part of it. I, I, I'm not saying that Hema needs this giant rule set. Um, and I'm even for different tournaments have different rule sets, and I kind of yeah. like that too. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but every coin has a flip side, right? And so um, nobody pays money to go see a HEMA tournament except for if <laughs> you know what I mean like this it's not like no one oh HEMA's on TV no one wants to watch it but you want right. to do it it's like me watching a soccer game I'll never watch a soccer game but if someone asks me to play I'll play because I like it right. I know the whole world loves watching soccer I don't see the point in watching a soccer game <laughs> but that's just me um, but everyone seems to think Say again. Give the soccer players swords. Oh, I would watch that all day long. <laughs> there <laughs> yeah, you in, go. <laughs> in my own personal club, I do uh, gamify a lot of things um, to, to to kind of get the the students to pay attention to specific martial aspects of what they're doing, so it, right. and it works out. It's really fun. So when I see what you do, uh, you show me a couple of videos. Uh, so just kind of explain some of the different shenanigans that you guys do and just kind of paint a broad picture and, and, and get into it. Um, well, like there's group fighting. I saw you were showing me some group fighting. Yeah, we fight one on one and we fight melees. So uh, in the melees, we will establish the edge of the fighting field. You can't go past here. Sometimes we have obstacles you can't touch like a marked off area that's water. And if you go in here, you're dead. Uh, sometimes we have resurrection battles. Sometimes we just fight till a death. Uh, sometimes each person gets three telling blows. Sometimes there's compromises where your team only gets two telling blows. Um, sometimes you can do unlimited resurrections. Sometimes you can say you only get one resurrection and you're done. Um, we do a thing called dead from behind. So when we, you know, you mentioned earlier about, you know, maybe 50 on 50 Buhert melees aren't going to be your thing because you don't want to get clubbed from behind by an eight pound mace. Well, we don't play like that from behind hits from behind are either just a bonk and you say dead from behind or uh, you can put your weapon in front of their helmet and say dead from behind. No full force hits from behind. Also, uh, when a person goes down, uh, if they're laying on the ground and not in the middle of getting up, uh, you can't hit them full force. So you can just go tap, tap, tap. And that counts as three telling blows. Uh, you can also lay your weapon on them and say, do you yield? Uh, we also occasionally have captures where if you put your weapon in front of their face and say dead or capture. There's situations where it's more advantageous for them to be captured and some that where they're, it's more advantageous for them to say, go ahead, I'm dead. Uh, 
So because they could get rescued or something. Huh? Is that so that they could get rescued at some point in the game? Yes. Yes. And also, uh, if if you kill someone and they're worth one point, then uh, when you capture them, maybe they're worth two points. Mm. If you kill a if you kill someone who's a knight and also a lord, if you kill that person, they might be worth four points. So if you capture them, they might be worth eight points. So if we're doing a thing where we're keeping score on the melee field, then uh, you know capture can be a lot more profitable as far as points. Ooh, I like that. That reminds me of like William Marshall and the things that he used to do back, sure, back sure. in the day. Yes, yeah, so that's really even, cool. Even in the middle of the mayhem of battle, the living history narrative can apply, and it can be like drama and like complex, nuanced situations where. Should I do this or should I do this? And it's not like kill or run. It's like, well, should I kill him or should I capture him? You know, uh, there's what else? Um, so in the Empire of Medieval Pursuits, we do punch, we do kick, uh, we do headbutt each other. Um, and these types of blows, maybe you'll count it as a telling blow. Maybe it'll just add to the fun. If somebody grabs you and you headbutt them and get away, then you can hit them with your weapon more yeah. easily than if they're if you're tangled with them. So sometimes mm -hmm. a punch or a headbutt or a kick is stopping an advance or buying you time or getting you out of a situation, um, and may or may not count as a telling blow. For for punches, a lot of times there's like it's either a a bonk because you're distracting them to buy yourself time. Or it's a substantial because you rock their head back and move their helmet so much that they're yeah. like, okay, 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 I'm done. You, you killed me. Uh, so a lot of times there's not a range with the with the, these types of blows. Um, we do a bit of grappling. Uh, if you're going to throw someone in our sport, you must escort them to the ground. You must go down with them. So you can't just firemen someone's firemen's carry somebody and send them flying. Um, <laughs> That's a good thing. If you, you, we can push someone on the ground and you don't have to escort them and you can trip someone and you don't have to escort them. But if you're going to pick them up and throw them on the ground, you actually have to place them on the ground and go down with them. Um, so we're not. But then you could get back ones. up. Huh? Can you get back up at that point if you're the one who took them down? Certainly. Uh, just because you're on the ground doesn't mean you're dead. So what happens in. And that's grapples. the difference between what you're doing in Booherd, basically. Right. So, or one so of the in a grapple, in a grapple that goes to the ground, there's a little bit of a gray area about punching someone in their face while they're on the ground. If they have the bar grill helmet, like I said earlier, and you give them a good couple bonks to the face, and they don't take it, they don't acknowledge that you've incapacitated them. It's someone might call hold and say, "Hey, you have a." basically no face protection you should take those as telling blows um because sometimes we forget uh, yeah. in the heat of the moment sure. um but if someone has a full face helmet and the helmet's laying on the ground and you punch them in it mm, that's probably not really the value of a any kind of incapacitating blow because all the force is just going into the ground mm -hmm. so usually someone will have a dagger and so the daggers come out. Now, what do daggers count for? If you stab a dagger at full plate, 
tempered Buhert armor. It's very hard to make that count. It's very hard to convince your opponent that that's a telling blow. So you want to get dagger stabs to the soft parts, like armpit, up Oof. underneath the helmet. You guys get groin shots? Groin, for sure. Everyone's required to wear a cup. <laughs> so, you know, usually that straight into the groin is usually not the thing. It's the spot well, no. next to the groin where the That's femoral artery is. Still quite um, tender. Yes. Well, okay. So all of our weapons that we're going to thrust with have a little foam thrusting tip on them. They're heavy and it smarts when you get stabbed really hard, but there's a foam thrusting tip covered in tape on the end. So it's not just the rattan stick jabbing you in your flesh. Okay. Um, and usually, uh, if we if we grapple, go to the ground, somebody gets their dagger out, and they're able to get it up underneath the helmet, we just wiggle it a little bit. You don't have to give any kind of impact. And there's so much going yeah. on, a lot of times, they don't know you have the dagger in there. So you're going to have to say, that's my dagger in there. So you notify yeah. them that, that you've, you've killed them. So those are, some of the, those are some of the fun things we get going on. You know, we do, we do shield walls, and we run around and flank the enemy. And if there's some field and some woods, then we sneak around behind them in the woods and come <laughs> gunning for them. But then you, yeah. you just run behind them and bonk, 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 bonk on their helmets. You know, you don't, oh. we don't dead from behind, dead from behind, dead from behind, dead from behind, you know? So uh, there's, you know, all kind of fun stuff like that. Uh, yeah. If there's no rule, if there's no rule against it, it's legal. There you go. So if there's a, old chair sitting there and you want to throw it in front of you so the enemy can't advance just fine uh, <laughs> if you want to leave the leave the grounds and go all the way around off the grounds on the road or neighbor's property and come back on the grounds there's no rule against it so if you want to sneak around to get behind the enemy just fine uh, any weapon that doesn't have metal on it can be thrown Mm. spears hammers axes anything that doesn't have metal on it. our our swords often have a metal basket hilt around the hand yeah, right or a, a metal cross hilt so we don't throw those mm -hmm. yeah um quick question so if someone is to throw a cut let's say to your torso let's say well either sword or shield arm can you grab a hold of it Oh, yes. Uh, in some sports, you're not allowed to uh, grab bladed weapons. You're only allowed to grab the haft of a spear or an axe, for example. Uh, mm -hmm. But in our sport, yes, for sure. Okay. You could eat. So we're going to three hits, right? You can yeah. eat one hit, suppress their weapon, and then you got take it, out right? your dagger, and now you're, you're on them and they can't use their weapon. So it's like they might want to get rid of their weapon and get their dagger out. Or just get rid of the weapon and stop you from using your dagger. Um, we have a rule that if you if you have bare fingers on the field, uh, you're either considered dead or you call hold. So if you use a basket hilt, sword, a cup hilt around your hand, and you don't have protection underneath there, and you drop your sword, you get it taken away from you, whatever, knocked out of your hand, then uh, you're no longer in play. And on the melee yeah, field, it. you probably want to go to your knee uh, and in one-on-one -on -one tournaments, you or somebody else is going to call hold because that's considered just too unsafe. Mm -hmm. So, if, but if you're wearing metal gauntlets or if you're wearing, 
you know, enough plastic protection on your hands, then uh, you can uh, lose your weapon and switch to daggers or switch to wrestling or whatever. If, if two people are wrestling and they, neither of them has a dagger, you pretty much just have to go to submission. You pretty much just have to go until they won't, until they won't fight you anymore. Got it. And they'll, they'll <laughs> say, I yield. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody's got to get tired first and then yield the bout. Yeah. Um, so do you mind if I switch gears a little bit? Sure. So you're, you're talking about just a lot of uh, variation um, in the in the fighting, in the gameplay. Um, now, as far as events that happen during the year, are there no- noteworthy tournaments that... Uh, yeah, for sure. Something that uh, you guys look forward to each year? Yes. Uh, once a year, we have an event called Riddle of Steel in Florida. Uh, I believe it's on uh, Mar- Martin Luther King weekend. And... Um, it's Conan themed. So all the events and all the objectives in the fights are themed after events from Conan movies. And we still wear our, our same armor that we always are in. Uh, but then we, there's a fighting pit. Uh, so they made a hill, dug a pit in it, and finished the walls with railroad ties. And there's a yes. door at one end. So then the marshal oh, opens the door. I've seen that before. Yeah, I'll send you a video of that too. That would be cool. So before you go in the fighting pit, everybody's just hanging around outside the door. And then there's just a giant pile of weapons. So you like go find somebody or or three somebodies in in just hanging around and say, you want you guys want to fight? And so then above the fighting pit, there's like seats and people hanging out and they're yelling and they're playing drums and they're playing music. And uh, so the fighting pit is like for their entertainment. Um, so you go in and you wave at the crowd and bang your weapons on the walls and then you commence fighting. And then, uh, you know, it's we don't really go to three telling blows in that situation. We just kind of act out a fight and just mm-hmm. beat on each other until somebody goes down or whatever. <laughs> um, and uh, so that's real of steel. Uh, I just got done with Viking Spring Raids, which is every April in Alabama. Um, and the venue that we use for that has, uh, it has uh, castles and cottage, like medieval looking cottages to stay in. It has a giant castle wall and gate that we use for fighting. Um, it has a little town area that we can use for fighting. Uh, it has a super awesome bridge and some open fields that we use yeah. for fighting. Uh a guy that lives there that fights in armor knows where the shallow parts of the lake are. So he sometimes goes in the lake with a spear and goes around the, uh, the enemy force <laughs> to attack them from the side in the lake up to his waist in water. It's amazing. Um, and I, I'd say our best event every year is Ragnarok. Uh, that's in June and it's in Seattle and that's sort of the kickoff event for the EMP. As I mentioned, mm-hmm. um, so uh, Ragnarok at Ragnarok, we have open field battle, we have a woods battle, we have a castle ba- battle, and the castle is really great. It's got four sides. It's got a main gate, two sally ports, and two towers. Uh, so you can do a lot of cool stuff in there. Um, then uh, we also have this uh, a mine. It's basically they made a hill and dug a tunnel through it, 
and then there's a shaft, a vertical shaft for light. And so where the tunnel meets the vertical shaft is a room and it's all concrete and there's nothing to break and you, you can't you, 50 guys in armor in a tunnel can't break anything. Um, and it's about maybe four fighters wide in the, in the hallways. And then the room is maybe 12 by 12. Uh, so the, the idea for the tunnel battle is uh, you uh, basically one of your guys needs to get out the other side through the enemy force. So y- you almost have to kill all of them um, yeah. to three telling blows like we normally do. But mm-hmm. it's so cramped. I mean, there's 50 or 80 guys in a hallway fighting push, push. And uh, <laughs> you can't swing because there's just no room. So it's all stabbing. Yeah. Uh, and then when, you, when you're dead, you can't fall down. You're just stuck between other guys. So they call hold and get the dead out. So then you extract yourself and then they keep on going. Um, so after all those melees are done, if you per- there's five melees in, in the, that day at Ragnarok. If you participate in all five melees, then you can participate in our ritual called the Ring of Fire. So the Ring of Fire is, well, we light a fire in a circle and one guy starts in the middle, somebody runs in, the two fight, and then whoever runs out of breath or is knocked out of the circle leaves the circle and then the next guy and the next guy. So you can keep fighting in there and knocking guys out or wearing guys out until uh, basically you are out of breath and, you know, cause there's flames burning around you. So you can't breathe after a while. Um, so the, the ring of fire is a ritual. It's not a tournament. Um, and basically we have to keep fighting until the flames go out or the world world will end. Um, so we have a little ritual at the beginning of that. Um, set a guy's helmet and sword on fire, and then a couple people attack him, and then the ritual progresses. New guy comes in, those two fight, one gets knocked out, another new guy, another new guy, another new guy. Uh, and everybody participates in the melees because they want to do this ring of fire. And uh, <laughs> we get so... We get so into watching what's going on in the ring that we forget to move the line forward. So it's got to be like <laughs> a couple of people going, move forward. Hey, hey, move forward, move forward. So that we're ready to jump in the ring. Um, but that's just a ritual. That's not just a turn. That's not a tournament. So we don't really go to three telling blows yeah. in the in the ring of fire. But of course, it's absolutely magical. There's bleachers around and there's people drumming and uh People people get caught on fire, and it's fine. We have people with wet towels and fire extinguishers right there. So we put the fire out quick if somebody yeah. catches on fire. Okay, and uh, cool. everyone's into it. No one gets hurt. Everyone loves it. And obviously, it's a fighting in a ring of fire in full armor is obviously a life-changing experience. That so, is super cool. And nothing My whole year come... is arranged basically around the Ragnarok event. Yeah. Yeah. I can see why. I mean, that's, that's, that is just so over the top. Amazing. It's like this outer world experience. This, uh, you, mm-hmm. you jump in a time machine and you're in this alternate universe and yes, you know, another those are gets... our main three events. Yeah. Okay. Riddles, so Steel, you spring raids and Ragnarok. Okay. Very cool. So two on the, two in the West East coast, one on the West coast, basically. Yep. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, 
Alabama on the eastern side. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, nothing against Kung Fu, but, uh, I mean, is there anything, is there any kind of analog for that kind of experience? Right, not really. Not, not really. really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe there is. I've never heard of it or seen it or, or whatever. Um, but I, I kind of don't think there is. <laughs> Fighting with weapons, with fire, and yeah, all, yeah, all the, yeah, all these melees and... No, that's that's cool. That's totally legit, man. That's that's super fun. Makes me want to just kind of get a set of armor. And, You're uh, absolutely make, invited. And make hey, time in my well, schedule to join you guys every once in a while and do that. That sounds super cool. You, you know, we're really proactive about getting people involved. So, like, I, I pardon me for forgetting what city you're in. Yeah, um, I'm in Vancouver, Washington, so I'm not too far from Seattle. It's like three hours. I mean, from that's that's the that's the epicenter. <laughs> you know, what, so what, you, what time of June is it? Uh, June 7th to 11th, I think, this year. Okay. Something like that. Okay. Yeah, yeah interesting. Because uh, Father's know, Day have, weekend, I, I have a tournament that I'm doing in Prosser. So, and that's that's uh, uh, southeastern Washington. Um, do both. That's the weekend before is Ragnarok. <laughs> <laughs> you can do both. Um, oh, you know, man. I assume you have good cardio already. It's decent. I mean, it's not like it. I mean, I'm 45. It's not like it used to be back when I was a total stud. But uh, I'm I'm getting it back. You know, COVID uh, kind of hit me in weird ways. I mean, I never got totally sick, but it's just I don't know. I I still feel weird. There's just things about me that's not quite the same. Okay, we're is, approaching the subject of how to bounce back from fighting. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, go 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 for it. Let's 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 talk about uh, recovery here. Okay, so as a 53-year-old man who gets in the ring with 20-year-olds all the time, I have yeah. to take special considerations. Um, so, you know, first and foremost, my armor is on point. Places I get hit have extra armor on them. I've, I'm always working towards making my armor lighter and more protective at the same yeah. time. And some folks say, well, if you wear less armor, you can move faster and outmaneuver. Yeah, 20-year-olds can uh, observe that yeah, principle. Yeah, right. You I can't. Be a I, band I need when to you're make 20. it lighter and more protective. Yeah. Um, so that's my, that's my first and foremost for, like, not dying when I do this sport. <laughs> um, but as far as bouncing back, my recovery from physical strain and combat and such, you got to eat clean. You got to eat clean. You can't be dumping poison into your body all the time. You know, I, I eat a bag of Doritos once a year. I eat a couple, mm. I drink a couple Coca-Colas a year, but otherwise it's like clean eats all the time. You know, I try to cook at home or I try to only eat, you know, uh, I, I can't eat filth or I feel yeah. terrible to begin with. And then I just, I can't bounce back if I don't eat clean and a mm -hmm. hydrate. I got to hydrate, you know, I go, I, uh, sometimes I drink a gallon of water a day and it's crucial. So I don't drink soda. I drink tea, coffee, and water, mostly water. Um, so during the Kung Fu years, I learned about Chinese herbs and about, uh, eating clean and living healthy and not poisoning your body and having good habits. Um, 
but Chinese herbs probably offer me an unfair advantage. Uh, I have four or five Chinese herb formulas that are in pill or powder form that you eat. Uh, mm -hmm. I got one to stay mentally calm and relaxed. I got one that's a general fortification of your body's energy to fight off colds and flus and also just to keep going, not like caffeine, not like a stimulant, but a fortification of the body's energy. Okay. Uh, I have another one for the sinuses, which I, I tried to take as seldom as possible, and I haven't taken it today, but it's there waiting for me if I need it. Uh, it turns my sinuses into the Sahara Desert. <laughs> um, and then I have some topically applied liniments. And uh, these rub-on liniments are ubiquitous in Chinese martial arts. So we hit the bag full of metal shot or gravel, and then we apply the liniment, and then we hit the bag, and we apply more liniment, and we just keep doing it and doing it and doing it until punching a human is like punching a sack of crumpled up paper, right? But we don't develop joint problems. Sounds terrible for you, right? We don't develop joint problems because we use the liniment to repair and protect our flesh. Hmm. So we never have to retire from these practices. Iron palm, iron fist, iron body, we're using Chinese herbs to fortify our flesh so that we don't destroy ourselves, so that we don't develop joint problems, and so we don't ever have to retire from these practices. So, uh, and uh, if you want to know about liniments for fixing up your your bum knee or your pinky that you broke when you were boxing or whatever and now it just hurts all the time i i got uh detailed instructions and websites for you to go to which uh we'll talk about that yeah very um, cool maybe we could uh, throw a link in the show notes or something so people can uh, take a look at that sure i mean orientalherb.com is my main go-to for a liniment called dip da jiao Again, mm -hmm. Dit Da Jiao is ubiquitous in Chinese martial arts. Literally millions of folks on this planet are using Dit Da Jiao in some form. There are many recipes for Dit Da Jiao, the rub-on liniment. Uh, and I am fortunate enough to know about the few best ones. But orientalherb.com, this company... Uh, their martial artists, the guy that makes the Ditta Jiao is a Kung Fu instructor and his formula is very old and secret and super duper effective with no side effects. Um, and you rub it into the skin where it hurts and uh, it forces your body to repair itself. I'm not talking about painkiller or analgesic balm. I'm talking about magic that tells your body <laughs> to repair itself. Um, yeah, and of course, yes. Uh, Chinese medicine is not magic. It's perfectly mechanical and systematic like Western medicine. Uh, it just goes at things from a different approach. Right. From it, from a different approach. Uh, so that the, the, um, the herbs have certain properties to them that, the, that, I mean, when I say chemical, right, it, like everything is a chemical when you look into it, sure. open up with a microscope so that the, the, the chemical composition of these things reacts to your physiology in, in such That's a way right. that they have a beneficial uh, uh, benefits. <laughs> yes. And uh, also the herbs, most Chinese herbs should not be taken 
as a single herb. They're usually made in combinations, synergistic combinations, where the herbs affect one another. And so the total effect of these herbs is greater than the sum of the parts. And you can't chemically distill the effects out of, uh, out of the herbs. They have to be prepared correctly, combined correctly, and applied correctly. So yeah, that's most right. Chinese herbs, they can't be uh, converted into a Western medicine equivalent. That's right. They well, are... even say like you take your, your typical over-the-shelf multivitamin, you're not getting the absorption and everyone's starting to become savvy of that, that whole um, right, right. You, methodology, right? That also. Yeah. You got to If you're going to get supplements, you got to get supplements that can be uh, assimilated in a healthy way without bad side effects. And so a big one here is calcium. We do not eat seashell calcium. You will give yourself kidney stones. And you'll hardly gain any benefit from calcium carbonate or whatever, the seashell calcium. Just get vegetable calcium. Calcium citrate is better. There's several others that are even better. So calcium that's derived from fruit or vegetables, your body can assimilate that without danger. So I said I drink coffee. I put cream in my coffee. I try to change that up every once in a while. So I use almond milk or soy milk creamer and not just always half and half. Because you know, half and half is fortified with fortified with calcium, and it's yeah. it's always seashell calcium. Yeah, so you. that's dangerous. Seashell mm -hmm. calcium is dangerous for us for us clean blood types. Gotcha. Super cool. But same uh, with same with your yeah, multivitamins. You know, like that's you mentioned, you just regular over the counter multivitamins from the supermarket. Eh, aren't that good for you and might be bad for you. So you want to research and you want to get the, you want to go to the health food store and you want to be real specific and choosy about what supplements you're taking. So you're not yep. poisoning yourself or giving it, causing your digestive tract encumbrance. Mm -hmm. Or just wasting your money. <laughs> or just wasting your money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the least of it. Right. Uh, okay. Um, yeah, thank you for that insight. That's that's really interesting. And uh, yeah, so again, we'll 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 put something in the show notes where people, um, you know, if you're interested in learning more about that, then we will give you a way to do that. Um, hey, William, really quick, um, what kind of methodology do you use to train for your martial art? Um, well, do you guys just uh, go at it? I mean, I mean, okay, you let me back up. Because you are an experienced fighter, right? So it's not like, um, yeah, I'll just leave it there. You're a pretty experienced fighter. Um, so it's not like you are trying to learn a specific thing because you don't know it anymore. You've, you've moved past that part. So like, how do you stay? Well, how do you stay in that top 25% to be that knight right. in, uh, in Empire of Medieval yet. Pursuits? I'm not there yet. Okay. I did okay. I did okay in that that selection tournament, but uh, above fifty percent, but not at twenty the uh, twenty five percent yet. Yeah, that that's um, a tough benchmark, actually. So, uh, well, me personally, I hit the training dummy every day. I hit the pell okay. every day. It's yeah. a a four by four of wood covered in carpet. 
mm-hmm. uh, so it doesn't make too much noise. And then I have a pretend shield dangling in front of it with rope. So I'm used to working around a shield. Because if you just have an upright post you're hitting, we already know it doesn't hit back. We already know it doesn't move. Yeah. But also, if the shield, if it's if there's no shield there, then that's going to be kind of like a foreign element when you go into sparring. So I have a pretend shield hanging in front of my pal. And so I'm always working on barely missing the shield. So, yeah. that, so that I'm used to doing that. Um, so Pell work every single day, uh, firing a spear at the Pell or at a mark on the wall or at a tennis ball that's dangling from an elastic. Uh, so my spear shots are not worthless. Um, also, uh, you know, when, when you fight somebody really good and they have a deep bag of tricks, Oftentimes, uh, like if your de- if your defense is good, they'll bust out something you'll ne- you've never seen before, and yeah. you remember that. Like, whoa, how did he get past me? And so, after you're done fighting, or after the day is over, you can go seek that person out and say, "Can you explain that move to me?" And almost everybody's super helpful about in oh, this yeah. aspect. So, they want to tell you how they did it. Yeah, and well, then they want you to go back to your hometown and do it to your guys. And then when they want to know, then you teach it to your guys. And so then now you got four or five guys that have never heard of this technique before. Now they train it for a couple months. And then when they see this originator of this technique somewhere on the field, now he's got to watch out for that same technique. And so yeah. what happens is the martial culture in the EMP gets better. So obviously you're going to have your tricks and your moves and your ideas that you're going to keep to yourself. But also, you want everybody around you to get better because it forces you to get better. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so that's one of the things I do. When, when someone can get me with a move, then I'm, I ask them to teach me the move. And then I go home and I add it to what, I'm, what I practice on the training dummy. So when I, when I do my Pell work, I have you know, now uh, 20 or 30 things I'm working on at any given time. And I'll pick yeah. you know five or six of them and just work on them tonight and then five so, or six other ones the next day and just repeat them 20, 50, a hundred times and uh, develop that muscle memory. Gotcha. So that's, that's one of the things I do to sort of break out of my plateau is uh, add new moves. Mm-hmm. And that kind of adds some dimension to my fighting. Gotcha. Um, and I always work on basics. You know, I always work on just basic shots, basic combinations, footwork drills, um, and, uh, and I try to keep my cardio like, up, like it's like, uh, it's like a rechargeable battery. So I like to always try to keep my yeah. cardio charged up. So how, how, uh, often, uh, not how often, uh, so typically when you work your Pell, how long, how long is a typical working of the Pell or what's the, um, what's the benchmark? What's the goal I should ask? Have you used a Tabata timer app? Uh-huh. Okay, so I use the Tabata timer. Um, yeah. And my, my current cycle is it's lasts about 18 minutes. Okay. Um, and so it'll be like a minute on of throwing shots or combos and then 30 seconds off. Okay. For yeah, 18 yeah. minutes. And uh, <laughs> so then after I do that, you know, that's kind of regimented and dry. It's just doing the same exact thing. And trying to go at like a slow to medium pace mm-hmm. and uh, do it 
you know, with perfect mechanics. Yes. Um, and then after I'm done with that, uh, just sword and shield drills and shots for 18 minutes. Then I'll switch to some, I'll just do some freestyle, just mm -hmm. play around with stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll also do uh, long sword, axe, spear, and maybe some dagger. Yeah. Uh, so that's a, maybe a 30 minute workout, 30, mm -hmm. 40 minute workout. Uh, and that'll happen three or four times a week. Yeah. Uh, and then well, that's pretty good. Days, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good amount. Um, and that Tabata days, timer, that just brings it to a whole nother level when you it, adhere to so that. It's so helpful. It's yeah. so helpful. It's like a coach. It's like you're almost like answering to a coach. So. Yeah, that one minute on, 30 seconds off. The first three, you're like, ah, no problem. But you got to kind of dig deep if you've been going for it, you know, those first three rounds. The 30 seconds seems pretty short after the fourth or fifth round. Right. Um, another thing I do, uh, if so if you put your armor on every day or four or five times a week, the wear on tear on your buckles and straps is going to be intense. Right. Yes. So I have a weighted belt and I have ankle weights. Mm. And I, so I wear those uh, while I'm training, while I'm doing pell work. So when, okay. you know, it's a encumbered footwork instead of just normal body weight. Because mm. um, they say train how you fight and fight how you train. So yeah. while I fight encumbered, so I want to train encumbered. Um, and uh, also uh, my normal daily driver helmet is this one. Visibility is quite good. And it weighs about nine pounds. It's like, it's that sweet spot of uh, helmet weight. It's perfect not for me. too heavy. Yeah. Not too heavy, but not so light that shock from blows will go into my noggin. Right. It's heavy enough to absorb blows. Also, it's stainless, which has a kind of a bouncy, rubbery sort of thing going mm, on. And interesting. It, it's just... It's the best thing ever. It, I've taken such hard blows with it and gone, yeah, I guess that was a I pretty hard one. I didn't realize that about stainless. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's got a, a squish or a bounciness to it that I like. Um, spring steel, tempered steel, there's a, a hardness to it. It's a different thing. It's a whole, totally different vibe. You hear, okay. you hear a clack instead of a doing. Um, yeah, it's subtle. It's subtle, but it's it's uh, noticeable when you do it a lot. Um, mm -hmm. But when I train on the Pell, if I'm going to put my helmet on, I usually put on the heavy Buhert helmet, which weighs like 11, 12 pounds. And just that three pounds difference is, I mean, my, my neck's working. pretty thin. So I, I, I definitely feel a difference. And also, I can't see anything out of that helmet. I mean, I can hardly see. So then when I go to fight, and I'm wearing this lighter helmet that I can see great in. It's like a, I have this like I have wings. I have this like power. Up. <laughs> so so I usually when, when I pell, I hit I use the uh, the heavy blinding helmet, and when I fight, I use a slightly lighter and awesome visibility helmet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely very cool. A, that's uh, that's quite improvement. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty smart. That's pretty smart. Um, and that that regimen. So you're saying you're doing that three, four, maybe five times a week. Yep. Yeah. And then on 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 lighter days, 
maybe I'll, I'll only do 10 or 15 minutes of it. Yeah. Maybe just a little sword and shield and just, mm -hmm. just to make sure I do it every day. Very cool. All right. So you ready, you ready for some fun questions or a fun yeah. question? <laughs> All right. So, uh, five items in your zombie apocalypse kit. All right. Well, uh, first of all, uh, a forward heavy chopping blade, like a machete or a falchion. Something, some, something that can break as well as cut. Um, you know, probably most folks are going to have some kind of firearm and extra ammo, but I, I'd say that's not, uh, not real original or specific to myself. Um, this more or less a bug out kit, right? Like society's being overrun and you're probably going to have to be prepared for stuff and you're going to have to be able to move. Um, so definitely going to have a small solar panel. Definitely going to have a colloidal silver maker. Cause <laughs> you know, if I get bitten, yeah, that's going to be a, viral infection i need to stop that immediately so mm -hmm. colloidal silver maker and solar panel to operate it for absolutely sure um what else i i wrote a few things down here oh yeah uh something to start fires with not matches but probably like the magnesium striker thing mm -hmm. uh because i'm good at starting fires with tinder kindling and small branches so uh learn that in boy scouts we never used matches ever we always did flint and steel so yeah. i would probably you know have some kind of high-tech magnesium striker thing and uh tooth care items like you can only go a couple of days maybe a week of not taking care of your teeth before it really starts bogging down your immune system and uh as we know tooth infections are dangerous Mm -hmm. So, so the tooth care floss or flossers, the sensitive teeth, toothpaste and a toothbrush is like, that's one of the first five things I thought of for my uh, bug out <laughs> apocalypse kit. And, uh, and that I'm sticking to my story on that. That's a, that's an important one. Yeah, no, that, that, those are, that's a good kit. That is a good kit. Yeah. You know, maybe something to stitch up wounds, maybe some food that lasts for a long time that's high calorie and low weight. Um, but but those those would be my like my main ones that uh I can uh you know benefit the group or the team or whoever I'm bugging out with. Um uh, yeah. and uh you know, other things I can get, you know. Yeah. Obviously I'm gonna be scavenging and moving around a lot, so Mm -hmm. uh, and hunting if I can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very cool. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's just kind of a fun question. Maybe it's a little five <laughs> years ago, but it's still, I, I still like uh, zombie shows if it's done well. So <laughs> yeah, Thanks. no, uh, you, if you ever see the bumper stickers, it's like zombie outbreak response team. Yeah. Uh, I mean, those guys are serious preppers and bug out type guys and it, you just, <laughs> you just make it fun. You know, if you do the if you do do the zombie response team instead of just the society collapse team, yeah, it kind of makes it fun. It does kind of make it fun, doesn't it? I I, I like uh, I like uh, the 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 mindset of the preparation. So it's it's yeah. always good. It's always good to have. For sure. Yeah. 
Um, all right. So uh, any uh, any social medias you want to share, YouTube, Instagram, that kind of thing? Sure. Uh, so the EMP ha is made of a kingdom called the Kingdom of Ardesca. And so our Facebook group and, you know, our forward facing social media is mostly the Empire of Medieval Pursuits page on Facebook and also the Kingdom of Ardesca page on Facebook. Uh, so you just start typing in the search bar, Empire of Medieval Pursuits or Kingdom of Ardesca, and it'll come right up. Empire um, of Medieval every Pursuits. Local, every local EMP group also has its own group. So you might find the one in your area just from starting the, the search process. Um, and the, the website that we've mostly been using lately is empiremp.org. We're also in the process of building the uh, kingdom of Ardesca.org. But uh, that's not, not quite built yet. But empiremp.org. Cool. And for, again, for people who are interested, we shall have show notes, uh, links to that in the show notes, I should say. Um, yeah, very good. All right, William, final thoughts, buddy. Um, my usual emphasis when I talk about the EMP is... It's safe. Martial combat, especially with a weapon, is really important. And this is accessible to you. If you can't find some guys in your area, you can start using a stick to hit a Pell, a training dummy, and you can get some guys in your area to put on improvised armor. Or you can get to a fighter practice that's not too far away from you. This is accessible to you. So you can start. I'm usually, I'm spreading the good word. I'm proselytizing. <laughs> I think everyone should try this. Everyone should find somebody with a helmet, put it on, and see how it is to get hit. And also take the sword and hit someone in armor. And you'll see. This is fun. This is safe. And, I mean, it's beautiful. Combat sports are beautiful. And combat sports with weapons are even more beautiful. Wonderful. Uh, yes. William Francis, everybody. Uh, William, I want to thank you for coming on. I appreciate your time and, and for um, sharing the, uh, what you have learned, uh, the, the, uh, the stories, uh, the recovery methodology, and, uh, and mostly your time. So, I, I, again, I appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much, Nathan. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Very good. Okay, everybody. Always remember to slay your demons, and we'll catch you on the next one. Take care.